Others are going to have no idea what are we talking about when we talk about the three forms of unity. Who, who knows what the three forms of unity are, by the way? Okay. We've got a few. Anybody want to name them? That's right. Yeah. So the, the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort. They're a confession of faith, kind of like the Westminster Confession that we use here in this church. We got it on the board there, um, but just from a different tradition within the Reformed world. Um, as we start, I think it's always helpful to read Scripture, so I'd invite you to take your Bible, and we'll read from Psalm 133. Psalm 133. And this is a psalm of ascents. The psalms of ascent, they're a section here in the, in the Psalter that the Israelites would sing as they were going to worship in Jerusalem. So each year you'd go to the festivals and you would be using these psalms as you're going up the hill to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So you can picture them. They're all going to meet together with their brothers and worship the Lord. It's not like going to a conference today in some, in some measure. You get the, the church camp high, uh, a little bit like that. But also you see the unity. You get to see people you haven't seen in a year. And I hope as we talk about a different expression of the Reformed faith, we get a little bit of that sense of unity of the church, that the church is bigger than just this church or even the OPC or uh, it's it's a big church that God has so Psalm 133 behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity it is like precious oil on the beard or on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion For there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. That's just a beautiful picture of refreshment. You know, you picture yourself in the the hot desert there, and oil was just a way of refreshing, keeping you cool. You get dried out from the sun, and oil would refresh you. The dew causes the desert to blossom. If you've ever lived in the desert, you you can see the green when there's actually dew. So that's... I hope something of what we get from this class is just a little bit more refreshment in seeing what the Lord has been doing all around the world. But one of the questions I'd like us to reflect on as we go through the three forms of unity together and the Westminster Confession, um, if you had to set up a Sunday school curriculum for kids or new believers, what would you talk about? What topics would you hit and why, and what would be included, especially when you think about discipling new converts. What do you talk about? What do you hit on? This was a question that we had in the church I grew up in. What, what curriculum should we use? What do people need to know once they graduate Sunday school? And I think the confessions do a really good job of hitting all those topics so that people can understand the faith and own it for themselves later in life. But that's just something to keep in the background as we're going over this. I think getting familiar with your confessions, whether it's the Westminster Confessions or the Three Forms of Unity, 
very helpful, especially when you're making disciples, whether that's children or new converts. Okay, so now we're going to get right into it with part one of your outlines. And I would encourage you, if you can go online, there should be a link, I think, in sermon audio. And I have plenty of links there for you in the, in the outline that I gave you. Uh, and you can click those online. You can't click them on the paper, obviously. <laughs> but uh, you, can, you can follow up there. So, when we think about the Reformed Church, I tend to think most of us think of America or maybe Scotland. And we can get kind of a truncated view of what was going on in the Reformation. It becomes very small in our minds. But that's not really the story of what God did in the Reformation. It was really an international movement, quite international. Remember in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg uh, chapel door. And that was in Germany. But it spread throughout all of Europe, and it was really everywhere. But it took root, particularly the Reformed and the Presbyterian branch of the Reformation, took root all throughout. So I have a little map here. You can't see the colors in the, in the handout. I'm not sure how well you can see the colors up here. You get to see my artistic abilities. Uh, but you have kind of the Lutheran Church in Germany, Scandinavia, Eastern Europe. You have the Turks over here, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, down in Greece and Turkey, the Eastern Orthodox in Russia and, and further east. Uh, but you also have a lot of Roman Catholics here in Spain, Italy, France, Ireland. But here you have the Scottish. That's where Presbyterianism is going to mainly be located in Scotland. And England was the, the Anglicans. Uh, so they become Reformed, but a different type of Reformed than us. But here in the Netherlands, you have what's called the Continental Reform. Does anybody know what nationality John Calvin was? French, yeah, he was a French Frenchman. So the Huguenots are the French Reformed. And actually, about a third of France at one time was Reformed. The, the country of France almost became a Reformed country. But they got persecuted, and many of them had to flee, and many of them fled to Switzerland. So Switzerland's another place where we have the Reformed Church. Uh, so you have Zurich, and you have Geneva, which is where Calvin was. And as well in Germany, you have a, a group of Reformed Christians, Calvinistic Christians in the Palatinate. And that's very important for our story, because that's where one of our confessions comes from. It comes from Germany. And then Eastern Europe is really a hodgepodge. You have Reformed people, you have Lutheran, and you have Catholic. And actually, if you go to Poland, we don't think of Poland as a Reformed country, but there are certain towns in Poland where you could go and look at the old churches, and the Reformed church might actually be bigger than the Roman Catholic cathedral. Uh, unfortunately, that got stamped out by persecution, and many of them had to flee, uh, but in places like Lithuania, typically a Catholic country. There is a Reformed church, actually one of my classmates is serving in right now. Uh, it's several hundred years old. The Evangelical Reformed uh, 
Church of Lithuania. It still exists. So this whole area, and, and actually everywhere, you're going to have Reformed churches, but it's going to take root mainly in the Netherlands, in Switzerland, and uh, in France, but France is going to have to flee. So very international, uh, and I don't know that we think about that enough. We tend to think, oh, everybody spoke English, everybody looked like us, talked like us. Not the case at all. Uh, persecution ended up driving quite a few to the Netherlands, to Switzerland, and to England, but uh, it was really everywhere. Now, if you had to guess, where do you think most Presbyterians would be today? Any guesses? I don't think it's in Europe or America. I would guess Korea, South Korea. There's about 9 million Presbyterians in South Korea today. I don't know what stripe of Presbyterian, but really, tremendous work of the Lord there in Korea. Quite a few Presbyterians today. So the international movement of the Reformation is still spreading. China, I don't know how many Presbyterians would be in China, but I would assume quite a few as well. Yes, very true. Uh, the Oliviaras, the intern at, with Brad Pepo, he's the minister in the uh, Brazilian Presbyterian Church. I want to say there's a few million there. So, praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, the faith is being spoken in Portuguese now. But there's going to be different expressions of the Reformed faith depending on where you go. So, the British Isles, that would be the Presbyterian Church. Uh, it's called Presbyterian because it's in contrast to what's going on in England. Now, who remembers why did the Church of England start? I mean, the gospel, obviously, but who was, the, who was instrumental? Henry VIII, right? So he started the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and uh, it becomes reformed. It becomes, they begin preaching the gospel. Uh, but they have a different form of church government. They have bishops. And in America, when we, the, uh, it's called the Episcopal Church. That's just speaking to the form of government they have. So episkopos means bishop rule. Presbyterian, we're all Presbyterian. What is Presbyterianism referring to? Right? It's referring to our form of government, elder rule. Or presbyter means elder in Greek. So the Presbyterian Church is elder-ruled, Church of England, bishop-ruled, and then you also have Congregationalists, which would be just the congregation rules. But all of them are basically uh, Protestant, basically Reformed. The, the Anglicans are going to be a little bit more of a mix between some Catholic forms of worship and Protestant forms of worship. So they're, they're really trying to differentiate form of government in the British Isles. On the continent, that's not the case. So you have the Lutheran Church, which is going to be following basically Luther, and will be called a lot of times evangelical. Reformed will be called evangelical as well, which just means good news church. We're a gospel church. I like that. Um, as opposed to Roman Catholic. And then the Reformed Church, 
we're trying to say, no, we want to be reformed. We're not, you know, people think of uh, criminals going to reform school, and you tell them they go to the reformed church, you're criminal. No, it's, I used to do construction, and uh, a lot of times you would pour concrete, and you'd have these big forms that hold all the concrete where it's supposed to go. So you pour a foundation, you got to keep the forms. And if you, if you have a mistake, you can have a concrete, you can have the form blow out, and then all the concrete goes everywhere. That's the Middle Ages in church history. You have the forms blowing out, and well, we have to reform the church. We have to get it straight, get it right. And so that's what the Reformed Church is trying to emphasize on the continent. So same faith as what you have in Scotland, but different context. And so there's going to be some different emphases that you see. Uh, obviously, they don't speak English, different culture, different form of government, or slightly different form of government, but the idea is basically the same. We need the church to be made right again, according to the word of God. Very similar, though, to what you see in the OPC. Very similar. The big difference would be evening worship is probably the biggest difference. Uh, In the Reformed Church, you basically have it every week, and they go through the Heidelberg Catechism week by week. So you get kind of a doctrinal service, a teaching service every week. And who knows where the word catechism comes from? A little bit of trivia. It's one of those fancy words that gets tossed around. I don't I don't really like the word anymore. I, I don't think it communicates like it should, but it comes from the Greek word to teaching, teaching orally. So it's just a teaching service, a discipleship service is what we're, we're doing when we get together in the evening. You kind of hit on all the big topics of the faith with a catechism. That's what the Westminster Shorter Catechism and Larger Catechism are doing, just hitting the big topics of the faith. That's what the Heidelberg Catechism is doing. How can we teach people the faith? So that's the biggest difference. There's a little bit difference, a uh, little bit of difference with church government and culture, but those aren't that big a deal, I don't think, uh, to most people. So any, anybody have questions about what we've been saying so far? Any curiosity? All right, we'll move on. So when the Reformed and the Presbyterian faith comes to America, there's a big difference, right? New context, just like A church in Lithuania is going to look different than a church in England. A church in Scotland is going to look different than a church in the new frontier of America. Who knows some of the first Protestants here in America when it was was colonial? What were the pilgrims? You know what church the pilgrims belonged to in New England? They were Congregationalist. They were Congregational-ruled. But they were reformed. They were Calvinistic. Uh, who knows who was in Virginia? Colony of Virginia. In the Anglican Church, the Church of England. But in New York and New Jersey, you had the Dutch Reformed Church. And uh, that was in 1628 was the first Dutch Reformed Church being established. But there were plenty of Dutch Reformed there before that. They just didn't have an established church yet. They kind of had lay pastors. 
1628, and you can read about them settling kind of what would be New York City. They go to Oyster Bay there, and they're pulling out oysters. Manhattan, they're watching bald eagles fly overhead. Uh, they're paying their pastor in animal pelts. <laughs> it was a bold new frontier in New York City, actually. But that area is going to have a very big Dutch influence for a long time. Up until the 1800s, you're going to have services spoken in Dutch still. Um, and actually, the first president, I think it's the only president whose second language was English, was Martin Van Buren. Uh, Martin Van Buren's first language was Dutch. He was from Kinderhook, New York. Uh, so just a little bit of trivia there. Maybe we don't think about in the Midwest as much, but... Yeah, very big Dutch influence. So today that church would be called the Reformed Church in America, the RCA. And unfortunately, that church has drifted quite a bit from, from the faith as far as uh, what was delivered to them. They've kind of turned their backs on that for the most part. There's still some good believers in those churches, but yeah, not what it once was. But our story kind of picks up in America in the mid-1800s. In the mid-1800s, you have a big wave of immigrants coming from the Netherlands to America. About 1850 or so, you're going to have a big wave of Dutch immigrants, and they're part of what's called the Christian Reformed Church. Anybody have experience? I know the Brinkerhoffs have experience in the Christian Reformed Church. Anybody else? Anybody ever been a member of the Christian Reformed Church? Now, they're, they're here and there. Uh, today, there's about 200,000 members in the Christian Reformed Church, so it's a pretty big body. Um, but they were part of a movement called the Offskiting, or the Secession Church. So in the Netherlands, you have the State Church, which is the Reformed Church, and there was a movement to kind of change the way the church was operating. They were kind of drifting away from the distinctives of what the Reformed Church had always stood for. And so a small group of ministers and churches uh, left the state church, and they started the secession church, the offskiting. And they were persecuted for it. They were kind of blacklisted from work. They weren't allowed to get government contracts and things like that. So there was a big immigration wave to America where they thought, hey, we can, we can start a new life on the shores of the new world. Uh, and most of them settled in northwest Iowa, and western Michigan around Grand Rapids. So kind of call Grand Rapids the Holy Land. I know you can't really say that in Buckeye country, but lots of good, lots of good churches up in Michigan and Iowa uh, because of that. So you see a lot of books being sold, published in Grand Rapids, right? You got Erdman's, Baker, Reformation Heritage. That's all going to be kind of coming from this immigration wave for the most part. Yeah, and then after World War II, you have another immigration wave, and most of those immigrants are going to go to Canada, uh, specifically places like Ontario and British Columbia. So there's a lot of Reformed churches up in Canada to this day. And actually, you won't have many Presbyterian churches in Canada anymore, unfortunately. Uh, most of the Presbyterian churches in Canada joined it's a very liberal church called the United Church. And I don't know much about the United Church, except they have anything goes, is basically, it's, it's basically a false church at this point, um, 
unfortunately. So the Reformed Church is really, uh, if you want Calvinistic faith, you have to go to a uh, Reformed Church in Canada. I got to know many Canadian brothers in seminary, and it's, it's a different flavor up in Canada because of that. Uh, as well, many of them eventually, I think, got tired of the cold and moved to California. <laughs> so that's another place where you can find a lot of the Reformed churches in California. But they're growing. They're going all over the country now. And uh, the story of the OPC, actually, is very influenced by the Christian Reformed Church. If you look at the founding of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, quite a few of the professors were raised in the Christian Reformed Church. So you have guys like Cornelius Van Til. He was actually from right near where I went to seminary. He worked on a little farm and uh, eventually became professor at Westminster. E.J. Young, Ned Stonehouse, as well as others. Uh, the name Gerhardus Voss doesn't sound very English. That was another guy that was raised in the Christian Reformed Church, eventually assimilated into the Presbyterian Church. But there was a melting pot at the beginning of the OPC, and there still is, I think, a melting pot. So that's just kind of a, a broad picture of God's church is it's growing, it's big, it's wide, and it's coming together in a lot of different ways. And the OPC, the CRC, they, they kind of have a common story that way. But unfortunately, things have not gone well in the Christian Reformed Church as of late. Um, and so... In 1996, a group of churches that I'm a part of, uh, called the United Reformed Churches in North America, started. Uh, it was over issues like women's ordination. So the Christian Reformed Church allows for women pastors now. Um, and they've progressively been debating more and more progressive or liberal ideas as far as what are we going to allow in the church? What are we not? Now, this isn't every Christian Reformed church. There's plenty of good churches still. I have a lot of friends in the Christian Reformed church that are serving to this day. Uh, but there is there's a difference there, unfortunately. And so the URC came out in 1996. We had 36 congregations and 7,600 members as it began. I was not a member yet. I was in a different church. But in 2021, there was 130 congregations and 25,000 members. So the Lord has really been blessing the URC. He's been growing it. And that's something to give praise to God over. They've been trying to plant many new churches. And so this is all well and good. But why are we talking about Yes. So I use URC, uh, but there is a denomination in England that goes by the same, and that's not, not the same thing. But the URCNA, if you see a URC in America, probably the United Reformed Church. So that's a conservative Dutch Reformed tradition that I'm a part of. But in England, if you ever move to England, I wouldn't recommend the URC, put it that way. So who cares, right? Why, why are we talking about this? Is, this? is this just trivia? I think it's important to get to know your brothers on one hand, uh, but also it, 
it helps. I mean, how many of you have moved in the last 10 years? Yeah, almost everybody. <laughs> um, so it, it helps to know, hey, what churches are we going to have a lot of uh, stuff in common with? Because maybe there's not no PC nearby. Maybe there's not a PCA nearby. Uh, what churches are we going to have things in common with? Uh, send a kid to college, right? Everybody, you know, quite a few people moved to go to college. Where should I go to church? Well, it's helpful to be aware of the wider tradition when, when people are moving. That's one thing. And I'll just give you my story. So I was raised Baptist. And how many of you? Yeah, Chuck, you laugh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lots of us come from different traditions, right? Baptist, Methodist, United Missionary, um, wherever, non-denominational. Uh, and we come into different churches at different points in our life. God brings us and guides us to places. I went to Liberty University in Virginia. It was a big school, Jerry Falwell's school. And I was attending, yeah, so everybody knows Jerry Falwell. I'm a televangelist, a moral majority guy. Um, but I was attending a small Southern Baptist church at the time. And unfortunately, there was kind of a nasty church split. And so I was kind of left up in the air. I don't know where to go to church. And I had a professor invite me to an OPC church. And so I said, oh, I'll go attend there. I'll, I'll check it out. And I got floored by the sermon. He was preaching on Deuteronomy, which I don't know how many sermons I've ever heard on Deuteronomy. And they were singing these really weird songs that I never have sung before. Uh, and I didn't really like it. And then I read the title. I said it was a psalm. Said, oh, maybe I don't love the Bible as much as I thought I did. <laughs> uh, so I got convicted by that, and I kept coming back, and coming back, and then eventually talked through issues like infant baptism with them. And so, hey, these people really take the Bible seriously, and they convinced me. Only problem was, after college, I went back to New York, and I was going to work construction as things fell through with kind of what I was studying. Um, and I was like, well, there's no OPCs nearby. Where do I go to church? Uh, there's no PCAs nearby. Where do I go to church? And the pastor said, check out the URC, see if there's any nearby. Lo and behold, there was one, and I joined. It was an answer to prayer. And I think that's probably a common, common story for a lot of us, uh, things like that happen. And so it's good to be aware kind of brothers and sisters and different expressions of the same faith. That's kind of one of the goals with this class is that we become a little bit more aware, a little bit more familiar with our brothers and sisters in different churches. Uh, one tool for kind of getting to know churches in different areas is called NAPARC. You see it there in the outline. How many of you know what NAPARC is? Have you ever? Yeah, you guys know. That's kind of an ecumenical or a way of showing the expression of the faith. It's the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council of Churches. And so churches that are involved in NAPARC, they're going to subscribe or they're going to believe the Westminster Confession or the Three Forms of Unity as kind of their, their doctrinal standards. So it's, that's a helpful way for us to get together and to help each other as we're planting churches, seeking to reach North America with the gospel. Uh, it's a way of just saying, hey, we recognize there's some slight differences maybe with government 
or membership, and uh, we want to be able to be a team together and be strategic about how we do this. And we can work on, uh, work on projects together. Um, one example of this, have you guys ever seen the, uh, the new hymnal, the Trinity Psalter hymnal? So this was 2018, we came out with it, the URC and the OPC published this together, it was a joint effort. And it, it took a long time, the URC had been trying to make our hymnal for about 20 years, um, but finally we got it together. So you got the, uh, the old blue Psalter hymnal was what the, the URC was using, then you had the red. Trinity hymnal that you guys use, and they came together, and they made a new Burgundy uh, hymnal <laughs> together. <laughs> but one of the really cool things about this hymnal is in the back, in the back you have the three forms of unity and the Westminster Confession and catechisms. So a very useful hymnal to have on your shelf if you like hymnals. It's got a lot, almost all the same songs but some newer ones, because there's been a lot of new stuff that's been written. Are you in that? Yes. No. Do you have a song in there? Yes, he does have a song in there. Uh, so, worth having on your shelf if you've never looked at it. You can get an app on your phone. I don't read music, so I like using that to kind of get to know the tunes of the songs that we sing. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of ecumenical working together between the URC and the OPC. When I told my pastor and my elders that I was going to be interning in an OPC, they said, that's great. I mean as close as you can get to the URC without being in the URC. We're like, this with you guys is kind of how we, we view it, at least. I think it's, it's similar. We trade ministers back and forth. We can have pastors doing pulpit supply in either pulpit. and I love seeing that connectedness. Uh, it's one of the things that really uh, got me excited about the Presbyterian and Reformed churches, is seeing how you can have a pastor from another state come and fill your pulpit, and that's normal. That's a good thing. Um, yeah. It's mainly church government. Um, so it would be, where does pastor have his membership? So Pastor Montgomery's membership is in the regional church or the presbytery, whereas in the Reformed church, the pastor's membership is in the local congregation. So that's kind of, that's the big difference. Uh, the doctrine between the three forms and the Westminster, virtually the same. A few different flavors, but that's, it's mainly just practical uh, church government. The funny story about Van Til, I, can, I think I can tell this. It's more a joke. But uh, Van Til, towards the end of his life, when he was in Westminster Seminary, he joined the OPC, um, and he was getting ready to die. But he would always kind of mentor the Christian Reformed students who were there because, uh, well, he, he had a soft spot for them. That was kind of his upbringing. And so he joked with the students. He said, brothers, 
I've been begging my Presbyterian brothers, before I die, let me join the Church of Our Lord Jesus Christ. Because uh, he was a member of the Presbytery. So it was just, you know, lighthearted banter between Presbyterian and Reformed. Not really saying anything of substance, but just a different way of doing things. They were, and they got kicked out. Yeah. So the Christian Reformed, there's, uh, if you go to Minnesota or the Dakotas, classist Minkota is very conservative. Uh, they would be more or less in line with a lot of what the URCs are doing. But if you go to Grand Rapids, I would say stay far away. Um, they're debating homosexuality. Um, this is one of the big debates in the Christian Reformed Church now. So there was a church. Uh, the synod has come out in the right direction. Thank the Lord. I still pray for them. But there was a church in Grand Rapids, <coughs> excuse me, that ordained uh, lesbian deaconess. And uh, they were trying to push the issue. Thankfully, the synod has stood up and said, no, that's wrong. But there's, there's a lot of problems in the Christian Reformed Church at large now. Not every congregation by any means. I'm friends with a lot of CRC people back home, but uh, you do have to be careful and aware. Different churches will be quite different. Well, yeah. Well, it was, I was not in New York City. I was upstate. No, it's just, uh, I think you guys have about 30,000. So the OPC's older, uh, they have more members, but uh, in different regions of the country, you're gonna have pockets of URCs and pockets of OPCs. Like there's a lot of OPCs around Dayton, a lot of URCs in Michigan and Iowa. Uh, if you go to Canada, you wanna be familiar with the URC, those are going to be a good option for you. Another one would be the Canadian Reformed. Mainly stay in Canada. But, uh, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, we're like this. Yeah, very close. Very close. Good friend. Yeah, I'm plugging it, plugging it. And I think I have in your outline, um, I have a link to the Trinity Psalter Hymnal uh, website. And if you're interested in getting, one of the really good things about the three forms of unity is they're not written in English originally. So we have to periodically update the language and do translations. Uh, which makes it a little easier to understand and you're trying to disciple people. So you can get the three forms of unity in the Trinity Psalter, or you can get this online for eight bucks, nice bound edition of all the forms and the prayers and the confessions of faith that we use in the URC. So this is kind of a companion to the hymnal. 
but you got the Cate Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort there, and it reads modern English, which is really helpful, especially with new converts and kids, because they're not used to all the thee, thou, dost, and all that. Um, so I would recommend, I'm going to be referencing this edition throughout our time in Sunday school together. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, the, the doctrine's going to be very similar. Um, I know the Westminster is going to have a much more specific statement on, like, the Sabbath and how you keep the Sabbath than maybe you would have in the three forms of unity. But in practicality, I think you have, uh, most of the URCs would be fairly Sabbatarian. They would emphasize that as well. Um, but the doctrines are going to be like this. Uh, but we'll, we'll look at each one. I plan on kind of breaking them up week by week as we go through. Yes, very good. Uh, so the context in which the confessions come to us, that's going to be a big... You're going to get different flavors because of the context. So we talked a little bit about England, and that's where the Westminster Confession comes from. Remember, we had Henry VIII. Um, and so the church was being reformed, but it was kind of this, this hodgepodge. You had some maybe Roman Catholic-looking things going on, but then Reformed versions of uh, the faith were being taught in the church eventually. You had the gospel going out in the Anglican church. Uh, in Scotland, you had very much a Presbyterian form of government. John Knox actually is going to flee to the continent because of the persecution, and he's going to be taught by Calvin in Geneva, in Switzerland, and then come back to Scotland. So there's kind of this cross-pollination of the tradition between the continent and the British Isles. Um, but the Westminster Confession is 1646. So the assembly is from 1643 to 1653. You can see there on the board if you can read it. Um, and that's going to be much later in the Reformation than you would have on the continent. So remember, the 95 Theses was 1517. And over 100 years later, you have the Westminster Assembly meeting. And who knows what's going on in England about that time? Yeah, Civil War. So you, you have kind of this pendulum swinging in England between Protestant and Catholic. So you had um, Edward was very much... He was a young king. Everybody had a lot of hope for him to be able to reform the church, make it very Calvinistic. Uh, but unfortunately, in God's providence, Edward died very young. And then who knows who came after Edward? Mary, yeah. We call her Bloody Mary. So that's a name we should probably know. Bloody Mary, 
killed a lot of Protestants. Uh, she persecuted the church. And so there was this pendulum swinging. You had Edward very Calvinistic, then Bloody Mary trying to persecute the Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church, and then who comes after Mary? Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is going to try to steer the middle course, keep everybody happy. But of course, the Word of God doesn't play politics, and so the church still needs to be reformed. And so you have this movement called Puritanism that's going on in England, and they're saying, no, we need to, we need to be more true to the Word of God. We need to keep pushing on, pushing forward, and they're being kind of blacklisted, they're being put down, being made fun of. I mean, the word Puritan is kind of a tag that they would throw on people to say, oh, you're just a Puritan. And so they kind of embraced that. Said, yeah, we think the church should be pure. <laughs> um, but that movement was going on, and then there was almost, well, there was a civil war, because uh, Charles was flirting with Roman Catholicism, part of the reason. And they were afraid that if the king of England would become Roman Catholic, that meant off with everybody's heads. Um, that was a big problem. Right? When you could lose your head over your faith, things are like... But Parliament, they had the Wong Parliament, and the, there was a Solemn League and Covenant. Kind of complicated. I'm trying to paint with a broad brush right now. But Parliament calls the, uh, the Westminster Assembly to basically update the confession of faith of the Church of England and make it more pure, make it reformed. Um, so this is going to be kind of at the height of reformed theology and Puritan theology. Right? You've had over 100 years for things to stew, and so they can be very exact with the doctrine, things like the covenant, um, Sabbath-keeping, can be very exact with it. it. It can read that way. It's very, um, very doctrinal. It wants to emphasize very much the abstract doctrine. Um, so advantages is the precision. Gets into difficult topics around covenant, which are very helpful. Um, and it usually has more to say about the faith than you would have in the three forms of unity. Uh, some disadvantages, though, if I can, I, they're not like big disadvantages, but one of the, the things people say about the Westminster is it, it seems a little schoolish. Like it, it reads like we're dealing with abstract doctrines, but it doesn't always have the warmth that you might want from a confession of faith. Um, and the current language is kind of, it's hard. Frankly, it's hard to understand for me and, I think, children. The shorter catechism was actually written to help disciple children at the time. They just spoke differently back then. Um, but I know we're, we're moving, marching on to updating the language, so it's very exciting, <coughs> exciting stuff. Okay, so that's kind of the Westminster context, but on the continent, you have a totally different story. So the first confession in the three forms of unity is the Belgic Confession, and that's written in 1561. That's going to be coming kind of from the, the lowlands here. So the Netherlands and Belgium were kind of one. And it's written in French uh, by a guy named Guido de Bray in 1561. So this is pretty early 
in the history of the Reformation. You have the Continental uh, Confession of the Belgic, Belgic Confession, and he's going to actually be martyred for his faith. So the, the legend is he writes this confession and then he throws it over the castle wall and somebody catches I don't know if it's true or not. But he, he says in his preface, you know, I would rather have my tongue cut out than not confess the faith. And he paid for it with his own life. It's a very different kind of context, and it's early. So things maybe aren't ironed out as specifically as they would be in the Westminster, but um, you catch a lot of the urgency uh, when you read the Belgic Confession. It's very urgent. We need to confess this truth. Our life depends on it. And it's trying to say we're not Roman Catholic, we're not Anabaptist, we're Reformed, and we're good citizens. We're not trying to burn towns down. We just want to have our faith in peace. Please let us do that. So it's, it's a good, good standard systematic theology. If you're looking for a systematic theology to read, you can read through the Belgic Confession. It's really, really helpful that way. Um, but there was a controversy over the doctrine of election. Article 16 of the Belgic Confession deals with the doctrine of election. You have that in the Westminster Confession as well. Um, but this, uh, there was this Dutch Reformed minister. He was a professor at the University of Leiden. And his name was Jacob Arminius. And uh, he taught what was called Arminianism. Surprise, surprise. So the Arminian uh, expression of faith actually came out of the Dutch Reformed Church. So there was this big controversy, almost a civil war, <laughs> over the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism, and Arminianism. And so they called the Synod of Dort in 1618 and through 1619. And they come out with the canons of Dort. Boom, big heavy hitters. And that's where you get... <laughs> the quote-unquote five points of Calvinism. Now, it's much bigger. Calvinism is more than the five points, but uh, we, we've all heard of TULIP, right? Uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited, or, uh, limited atonement or particular redemption is probably a better way of talking about it. Irresistible grace and perseverance or preservation of the saints. That's going to come from the canons of Dort. And that is a huge international uh, synod or get-together of all the Reformed and Presbyterian churches in Europe at the time. And that happens over 100 years after the Belgic Confession. You have this uh, Arminian controversy going on. And so we'll look at that later on. But that's a, that's a very helpful document because the Reformed Church stayed Reformed. <laughs> they, they did not go Arminian. But really, I think everybody's favorite of the three forms is probably the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism was another very early confession of faith. It's from 1563. So again, about 100 years before the Westminster Confession and Catechism, you had the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism, it was from the German Reformed Church, so the uh, Palatinate Germans. So you have um, the Belgic written in French, 
as they're about to be martyred, you have the canons of Dort. They're actually written in Latin, but you have people from Scotland, England, uh, Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and they invited the French reform, but they weren't able to make it because they wouldn't be allowed back in their country. Uh, that's the issue. They're very international with the canons of Dort. And then Heidelberg is written in German. Very different flavors as far as where it's coming from. Um, but it's written because Elector Frederick III wanted a teaching tool to teach the Reformed faith to the people in his kingdom there in Germany. Uh, and so he gets the uh, faculty of the University of Heidelberg to write this teaching tool, the Heidelberg Catechism, teaching. Uh, and the main author is going to be a guy named Zacharias Ursinus. So Ursinus is going to kind of head up that effort. And the idea is, how can we warmly teach people Christianity uh, from a reform perspective, not Roman Catholic and not Lutheran? Uh, but we would have a lot in common with the Lutherans as well. And especially in Germany, they're trying to pull people together but then say, no, we don't agree with this. So to give you an example kind of of how it's written, uh, kind of a contrast between Westminster and Heidelberg, I can, I'll read question answer 86 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism and then 21 of the Heidelberg. So both are kind of dealing with the same subject and you can get kind of the distinctives. So Westminster is trying to be very brief, give you the doctrine, here it is. You can memorize this, which is helpful when you're trying to, to learn things, keep it short and sweet. Uh, so what is faith in Jesus Christ is the question. And the answer, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Beautiful answer. Right? Uh, but listen to how Heidelberg takes what is true faith. Is it, you can see the warmth. I think in this. True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace only because of Christ's merit. That's one of the most beautiful, I think, question and answers in the Heidelberg. But it really, it gets at, this isn't just doctrine, this is for me. I need to have true faith. It's not only uh, sure knowledge of all that God teaches me, it is that. It's not just assent doctrine, but it is wholehearted trust in the Lord that he's granted me salvation by grace alone. So, that's kind of the flavor you can see between those two. And the way the Heidelberg Catechism is organized is really helpful. If you had to sum up the Christian, wor uh, Christian life in three words, you could do it this way. Sin, salvation, service. Or guilt, grace, gratitude. That's more or less the outline of the Heidelberg Catechism. It starts out, we're sinners, we're under condemnation. And then it says, well, how are we saved? And it explains the gospel. And then how are we to live now? And it explains the law of gratitude 
wall of service that we have as Christians. Uh, so, I mean, just go back to that first question I asked you guys. What would be the curriculum that you would uh, give to new believers or children? The way that Heidelberg does this is by going through these big topics. So first would be Christ's summary of the law as the law of love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Yeah. Um, And it says, well, have you done that? Have you loved God and loved your neighbor as you should? Answer, no. (laughs) Uh, You have not, and you're condemned by the law of love, actually. And you are in big trouble. So what has God done? He has sent Christ to save us, and it uses the Apostles' Creed to explain the gospel. So the Apostles' Creed is a big one. You can get what God is doing in the Apostles' Creed for salvation. You get the Trinity, and you get how each person of the Trinity is working for our redemption. So That's how it explains the gospel. And then it it also uh, talks about, well, what do we do when we come to the Lord's table? What do we do with baptism? And the sacraments are signs and seals of that gospel. You got the Apostles' Creed, the sacraments, and then it says, okay, well, now that we're saved, how are we to live? So then it explains the law of gratitude using the Ten Commandments, actually. So this is how we are to order our lives now. And then it says the chief way that we're to show gratitude to God is through the life of prayer. And so it finishes with the Lord's Prayer. You got the Apostles' Creed, uh, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments would be kind of the big, big topics that are covered in this uh, curriculum, if you want to call it that, of the Heidelberg Catechism. And this is what, if you go to a Reformed church, the afternoon or the evening service will be preaching through this catechism basically each week. Uh, I think I have Lord's Day 1. This is the most famous. We could maybe confess it, and then we'll just end in prayer, because I think it's time. But um, if you have it there, we'll just I'll ask the question, and we'll all respond together. I love this. This is everybody's favorite. Uh, but Lord's Day 1. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready to go on to live for him. I love that one. It's, uh, I think it's just a beautiful expression, not only of doctrine, but what does it do for us? It comforts us. It strengthens us as Christians to know what God has done for us. Uh, so with that, unless there's questions, any questions, comments? Let's just have a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for the good news that uh, Jesus Christ has come and he has saved us. Lord, we thank you that you are in control of all things. And what a comfort to know that. Father, as we 
continue our study uh, next week through the three forms of unity. We pray that we might get to know uh, your church better, that we might be able to appreciate different expressions of the same faith, maybe different accents of the same truth, and uh, that we might be edified by it, built up by it. Be with us now for the rest of the day, we pray, and help us to glorify you and worship. Uh, we pray especially that you would bless the, the hearing of the sermon to our ears, that we might uh, be built up for the week to come in your truth. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.